Welcome back to Insight Download. I'm John Gorman. And I'm Fabio Lomolino. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to two yoga teachers who have opened up a new studio here in Baltimore. And John, you connected us uh, with them. Can you maybe set up this conversation for us? Sure. So for this conversation, we met at Baltimore Yoga Studies with the, their two teachers, Heather Hacks and Justin Temple. For those of you that may have taken some yoga classes in the past, uh, this style of yoga is a little bit different. Um, so at Baltimore Yoga Studies, they practice what's known as Ashtanga Yoga, which is a set sequence of the same order of poses each time. And the teaching style is called a Mysore teaching style. So instead of one teacher at the front of the yoga studio instructing students on the different poses to do all at the same time, it's a self-paced practice where students can arrive at any time and start the practice from the beginning. And so while the students are staggering their practice through the routine, the teachers, Heather and Justin, walk around to each student and give kind of a, a mini private uh, correction or one-on-one uh, -on -one individually tailored instruction, meeting the student where they're at and helping them along. So I think this conversation is really interesting to folks who've done yoga before, but totally applicable to anyone who's never set foot into a yoga studio. I think some of the things you'll hear about that are applicable universally are uh, this dynamic that they have between doing things collectively in the same space with the same group of people, kind of at the same time, but also allowing everybody to move at a different pace. The way that the repetition of the same series of poses creates this benchmark which, against which people can measure and sense their progress. Um, the insights that they have about uh, the connection between the, the physical body and mental experience. There's all kinds of stuff here that... It, if you love yoga, you're going to really enjoy. If you don't even, if you have no idea what a sun salutation is, it'll still be super applicable. So without any further ado, let's jump in and, and hear about Baltimore Yoga Studies. And with that, here is our conversation with Heather Hacks and Justin Temple. Okay, so welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> welcome back. Here we are in Baltimore Yoga Studies a small yoga studio within the Guardian Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gym. gym yeah. Thank you. Um, and we're joined by Justin Temple and Heather Hacks, the two teachers at the Baltimore Yoga Studies Yoga Center. Um, so uh, I guess to start off, um, uh, to help orient listeners briefly, <laughs> um, <laughs> Tell us a little bit about in just kind of different categories. So when we say yoga, what do we mean? Um, you teach a particular kind of yoga, Ashtanga. Uh, so what does that mean? And what does Mysore mean? I'll let you take that. Which one? Yoga. yoga. Why don't you yoga. take yoga? Oh, boy. That's, that's scary. <laughs> All right. So yoga. What is yoga? There are a lot of definitions of yoga. But I, I guess I'll kind of start with like the most obvious, which is... In the West, we mostly consider or, let's say, associate with yoga with postural yoga, hatha yoga. So these are the asanas with the postures that you often see on Instagram or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> and so that tends to be the, the kind of most obvious form of yoga that, that people identify with. But yoga 
as defined by the Yoga Sutras, is Chitta Vritti Nirodaha, which just means this is also, um, <laughs> it's like you know too much, but, and there's like debates about it, but the very easy, like kind of easy, most commonly, uh, the way that's, that's translated is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind or the mm. stilling of the mind. Mm. And so in a lot of the classical yoga texts, um, including the Hatha, Hatha Yoga, Pradipika, like postural yoga is extremely secondary to the mental benefits of yoga. And so yoga can mean, and often means, and for me means, doing my asana practice, but also deriving the psychological as well as health benefits of, of that. And then for a lot of people who decide to kind of take their yoga practice, let's see, I don't, I don't want to like give a gradation, but maybe they become more curious about other aspects of yoga, like the breath work, um, so that's pranayama, um, meditation, and dharana, uh, concentration. And, and so they t- start to find that yoga has m- what might be considered secondary benefits, but are actually, like, that's the stuff. And you mean there's more to it than just learning how to do how a to, handstand? How to, put your, I know, how to put your head up your ass? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we're trying to get people to take their head out of their ass. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a you know, long explanation for you know, something that, that seems pretty simple. Okay. That was really lovely. Um, I'm glad I, I punted that one to you. <laughs> um, so, like, I think that dovetails really nicely into what is Ashtanga yoga. And so, like, you can take that in two separate ways. Ashtanga, um, as it shows up in uh, the Yoga Sutras, is an eight-limb practice by which you start to achieve yoga or that stillness of the mind. Asana only being one of those limbs, right? There's also the yamas and the niyamas, which are observances, both internal ex- and external there's uh, meditation, um, uh, sense withdrawal. What else am I missing? Pran- okay, so it's um, yamas, yamas, niyamas, asana, asana pranayama, pranayama um, pratyahara, pranayama. which is withdrawal of the senses, right. um, the, then dhyana, concentration. Um, so dhyana, dhyana, so it depends on who you talk mm-hmm. to. Um, dharana, which is meditation. And, and then, then samadhi. Samadhi, this elusive transcendence and there's like a bunch of different kinds of samadhi which might be like fixating on a a single object but then there's like this so the way that richard freeman talks about it is like water flowing under ice like you're kind of watching Mm -hmm. what's going on in the mind and really not getting super caught up in it and then there's this I maybe experienced it once, but just this like completely, I know. But but then of course you're like, I want it back. I want it back. Um, (laughs) But then this like complete, almost like disappearance of the ego. Um, Mm. So that's, yeah. And then like when that happened, I was in a room with somebody and, and that person, or with a bunch of people, but the person next to me was like, you kind of disappeared there. And I was like, Oh, was that when you were practicing primary? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was wild. Like I dis I know I disappeared. And it was wild that somebody else was like, you disappeared. And I was Whoa. like, that's weird that you noticed that too. So it's that dissolution. And then that dissolution of the ego can be actually for, for people who go like pretty deep. I've heard people and I've never really had this experience like where they just kind of dissolve, but like not just the bad stuff, but also the good stuff. 
And so you let go of everything because ultimately you have to let go of this body, right? Right. And that's the preparation for that mm. as well. Wow. And, yeah. The, again, <laughs> wonderful explanation. <laughs> and so that's one way to kind of parse Ashtanga. The other way is kind of the more, I guess, quote unquote, customer facing opportunity for it. And that's like through an asana practice. That's like a predetermined set of postures um, that you would practice over a significant period of time with a significant framework around uh, traditionally at six days a week. We here only do four because we have earthly, <laughs> earthly things to attend to. Um, and like that is like how Ashtanga is defined. It's, it's defined by the sequence of postures. It's defined by the series of postures that you would practice in that specific order and the way that you practice those poses are are somewhat specific depending on who you talk to i feel like we're a little bit more democratic than most probably a lot more democratic than most about that in in praxis but yeah it's 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 those things right and there's a world where you could say ashtanga yoga as the practice uh, the asana practice of it is really tying back two ashtanga as it's described in the yoga sutras we're just doing one of those limbs as a vehicle to get to the other seven um because it's easier to start with the body because like we have one and we yeah. can see what we're doing in real time with that um so it becomes a vehicle for understanding those observances your breath your sense withdrawal your meditation your um hopefully eventually washing away of ego maybe briefly but for maybe maybe for that the average person who has some familiarity with like the the basic new age playlist incense mm -hmm. yoga that kind of thing one thing that they would notice that's different about this practice is there is a set sequence of postures that generally people will follow from the start to the finish yeah um rather than it being different every single time that's right that's right and i love my new age music playing <laughs> incense burning yoga friends um so like you know i i think that there's a world where all of it is good right and like my personal perspective is as long as somebody's practicing like they're taking an opportunity to get to that thing right mm -hmm. like this is just one way of practicing yoga and trying to get towards that specific like end goal using air quotes but whatever way you go about doing it i think is a good thing mm -hmm. because even if you're coming to the practice for you know even the most vain reasons and i came to the practice for some of those reasons too personally right the more you're steeped in it or the more time goes on as heather said you get more curious about like what's actually happening um on the inside mm -hmm. and there's an opportunity there to like kind of start to scratch at that and, and start to answer your own questions about yourself. And so there's one more qualifier that you use here, which is Mysore. Mm -hmm. uh, so what does that mean? And for someone that maybe has gone to that more uh, common westernized vinyasa yoga class and they walk in here for the first time, what are they going to see that's different from what they're used to? Yeah, they're going to walk into a Mysore room and typically it looks like chaos. Um, it's like a <laughs> bunch of people seemingly doing poses just randomly all over the place, right? What's really happening is everybody's doing the practice, uh, essentially the same practice. We'll use that for simplification terms, right? But just at different times because everybody's practicing at their own pace. There's no teacher in the front of the room kind of leading people through a class uh, as you would experience in, in like a vinyasa style class or a, a typical hatha class, right? Um, so you come in. 
uh, you would roll your mat out and you would just start practicing. Uh, you don't even have to say anything. It's nice when you say hello, but you don't have to say anything. <laughs> and from there, you just keep working through it. And that's it. But like in that particular context, people are coming and going relative to what they need for that day. So some people that might need to get to work at eight o'clock, like start super early or people who have a little bit more flexibility in their day or are late sleepers, they'll show up at like seven and that's all good. Um, and like everywhere in between. Seven, like they show up at seven, that makes them the late. I know. I'm like, God, <laughs> it sounds like luxury. I man. know. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's, that's what it is. It's, it's just like, yeah, a shared experience uh, where you're practicing together, but not. It's every much a solitary practice as it is a solitary practice in community, which is how I, I've started to come to like really appreciate it, right? Because I, I think that there is something really beneficial to understanding that the practice when you're doing it is yours and yours alone. And to really own that and to, you know, celebrate it. Um, because it's... It's one of the few times where you have an opportunity to sit down with yourself and just be like, okay, this is what it is, whatever it is, good or bad, and like make a decision about what you're going to do with that. I'm going to take a quick break here, folks, to highlight the producer of our episode, John Gloss. John has been helping us to take the idea for this podcast and make it a reality. If, if you're listening and you're interested in recording your own podcast or if you're a therapist looking to record mindfulness practices for your clients, any sort of audio production at all, um, please feel free to, to kind of check our, our show notes for contact information uh, so that John can also make you sound really good. Uh, so I, I started practicing... Mysore style Ashtanga yoga, I don't know, like seven years ago or something mm-hmm. like that, six years ago. And I, at the time I was, I was going to, um, they called it rise and shine classes. That was like six thirty to seven thirty, a one hour class. Mm-hmm. And in the same studio, there was another room where there were other people practicing this other weird kind of yoga. <laughs> and the person that was there checking us in at the desk was always suggesting, hey, why don't you try this other one? Why don't you try this other one? And I would look on the schedule and it was like three and a half hours long. <laughs> and I was like, what's the deal? Like who has time for a three and a half hour long yoga class? And finally he said, no, no, no. It's not actually a three and a half hour long yoga class. Mm-hmm. The room is just open for that period of time. Mm-hmm. And so people can drop in at any point And like you said, Justin, start practicing. Even if their practice only lasts a half hour or yep. 45 minutes or two and a half hours. There's that kind of flexibility. And that's something that really appealed to me. Like I don't have to be there at a specific time. Yeah. If I'm running a little bit late or I slept a little bit later, like that's totally fine. The space is there for that. Um, yeah. I, I respect. And I, I say this because like there's, there's part of me that wish people were, would feel empowered to, when they're feeling their worst, just show up and breathe, right? Like, I think that there's something really valuable about just showing up to the space, keeping that rhythm, and just rolling out your mat, just sitting down, and just sitting there and taking in that experience, right? Um, I know that also has its limits, because, like, you know, whatever life situations are throwing whatever stuff at you, like, makes that a little bit more tenuous, or, like, it becomes challenging, injuries become challenging. But I think there's really an opportunity to understand that the practice is much more than like what you can do and to that point john right like sometimes in the morning like the only thing i can get on my mat to do like 
physically or emotionally is just a single sun salutation and pack it up and go. Like, and I've driven here to do that. Mm. And it's like, to me, there, there's value in that just in so far as like that can be a practice and that can be a good practice because you made the decision against all odds to just do that and just let that be the lesson. And so, yeah, like it, it can be a five minute practice in the context of like that two hour space that we're open and we're open for that. And I, I would hope that people never feel intimidated by the length of time when they're first starting or when they're five years in, right? Because there's always an opportunity to with in whatever you're working in to get something out of it. In terms of like self-practice, like because what you're doing is memorizing some sequences, right? And we throw at people as much as their memory can hold. And that's actually really challenging for people. The memorizing itself, but also the psychology of the memorizing, because it just, it really psychs people out. It just really does. And people, I think, get some sort of performance anxiety around that. And they're just so scared of this style. Like people are, and for some good reason, like like the, probably the stuff they see on on the Instagram looks wild and bonkers mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, um, you know, I think that might, there might be a branding problem of, of the sequence, um, because we, um, might post the, you know, pictures of the, the wildest things that we do when in fact 90% of what we do is like not wild. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, and you know, like for instance, right now I'm dealing with a pretty major shoulder injury cause I crashed my bike and, I know it's a major bummer. And, and so I have to stand on my mat and contend with myself <laughs> mm -hmm. and my brain and my grasping and my holding on and all the things that you do. And, and that's part of it. Like that is, I mean, I don't like it, but it is what it is. And so sitting with yourself like that is hard. It's really hard. And it's for some people harder to get absorbed than like having the perfect playlist and having somebody take you through a set of postures. And like at this point, I'm kind of the flip, like the other stuff feels extra to me. And it's just like me and my breath. And that's what helps me get absorbed. But I was definitely one of those people that was like terrified of my sore. Even though I was doing Ashtanga I, and all the time, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I know it, you know, and it's, it's just really scary for people. But for people who can, and we, it's a heavy lift. Like we're asking a lot of people, get up really early, memorize the sequence, you know, sit with your own brain and your, and watch that. And, you know, it, it, it is a lot to ask, but I guess the thing is, is that people who, for whom it really clicks, like it really clicks, like it really, really does. And that's, I think that's substantial. Mm -hmm. I think there's something very significant in that. If I may, I think the thing that you brought up around, um, you know, how people are hesitant towards the idea of like that autonomy, right? And how they're really attached to the idea of like somebody leading them through the practice and like having that, that playlist, which probably provides some sense of comfort because it's something to pay attention to outside of yourself. Um, what I, what I've noticed with people, the people that, this particular method of practice clicking with does is that it it really allows them to 
tap into um, kind of that ownership of their own experience. And that's something that directly translates outside of the context of this practice, right? Like that becomes a skill that they take with them. Um, and the one beautiful thing that I feel like I've noticed um, through experiencing people's practice is not necessarily like the transformation that I've seen them kind of undertake, like when they're practicing and like all the poses that they get, but like how they handle life changes become really fascinating and interesting. And like, not even the, the random wild swings that like life throws at you, but like the fact that people will take ownership over their own lives and say, I'm done with this job or I'm moving because like this feels right to me where like, I don't know if two years prior they would have because they didn't have the language around what it is to own an experience in that particular kind of way. So I, I think that there's something to that, right? Like I, I'm taking guesses, like maybe they were always thinking about doing something like that. But I, I'd like to think that like the experience of practicing in this way and like really, um, you know, having agency over their practice and in this very specific kind of way to the extent that they do um, contributes to all of that. Like the other thing I think that people start to realize is like whatever they're doing on the mat is like what they're doing in their lives. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a student who's been working on this like one very complicated maneuver and it's in their body. Like they can do it. They just don't do it. And mm -hmm. they said the other day, they were like, I think I'm afraid to succeed. And, mm -hmm. um, and they were like, I, and I know that that's not like, this isn't the only place I'm like that. Mm. Right. And, and so there are, you know, you can kind of just tell like the way that people live in their bodies, the way they live in the world and they get in, start to get insight into that. And that's super cool to watch yeah. also. Yeah. And you can kind of like as a teacher and, and I think we can, we both do this. I'm, I don't want to speak for you, but like you can kind of see people's thought bubbles sometimes, oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you can see, I'm like, I know what they're the thinking. The gears are turning. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and you'll say, you know, blah, 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 you know, whatever it is that they're, they might be thinking, they're like, how did you know? It's like, you can see it, you know? And, and so you might bring to light or they have insight into some aspect of the way that they approach something complicated. And that's what I actually really love about the container of the practice because the, the practice is complicated. You have to do a lot of really complicated things that take a really long time to quote unquote get, or you might not get it at all. And how you show up every day mm -hmm. and fail a lot <laughs> and, and, and be okay with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the practice is like really consistently failing. Like it's it's designed for you to fail every single time you practice. Like that is the point. Um, and like what you do with that is like such a mind trip, right? Because none of us are getting the six series. Like I, I hate to tell anybody that's like looking for it, but like Yeah, there there are six series. Yeah. Like people rarely get through three. Three. Yeah. Maybe even two, right? Yeah, like Yeah. But it's like you know, we, we are setting ourselves up to fail. Like that is kind of the container that we're in, but like, that's also liberating because it's like, all right, so I know that I'm not going to get something at some point. What's the strategy around that? Like, where's my head at? What's my relationship to that? Like, why do I need to attach a achievement model to this when there's so many other things that I can do leading up to that point that like really truly add value? And that also doesn't necessarily mean that I don't stop trying to get that last thing, right? Just because I can't do it now and I might not ever be able to do it. Like, what's the closest that I can get? 
And what's the lesson in that like approximation of that shape? And how do you not sacrifice the good for the perfect? Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. Um, so I want to connect a few dots here just from our previous conversations because I think there's a lot of overlap in some of the things we're talking about. In our first conversation with Lisa Schulman, who's a neurologist at the University of Maryland, we talked a lot about how grief impacts the brain and how, uh, for example, one way that grief impacts the brain, how trauma impacts the brain, is this disconnection between the physical and emotional body and the cognitive, intellectual, kind of prefrontal cortex of the brain. And that really recovering and healing from that trauma is really about reconnecting and sort of reestablishing the connection between those two hemispheres. So I, that, that was what I was thinking about when I was hearing you speak about watching a student sort of struggle with something physically and then suddenly be like, oh, like this is happening in other spheres of my life. How like that, re- that deepening of that relationship to the physical body suddenly sends these new signals to the, to the mind that's like, helps connect things that were almost like everyone else was seeing, but from the inside you can't see because there's something missing in that conversation between the body and the mind. So I think that's just how I was hearing you say that it's an eight-limb practice and you begin with the body. It's like, to me it seems like when when I watch, especially folks who come out of a traumatic experience and they go into something like yoga or walking meditation, that it's they're recovering something. They're like a beginning again at the body. Mm-hmm. And that, that then allows them to do all, it's like we have to come back to the body and like reground in the body to then move forward. And I was just wondering if like you, there's, there's something to me about what, when we were talking about how this studio space got started that seems to be a little bit like that, right? That the studio got started because something bad happened, right? The pandemic happened and it shut down your, your ability to practice and teach. I was just wondering if I could ask you to reflect on how your practice influenced how you navigated that situation to establish this practice. Like, mm-hmm. how, did, how did this work you've been doing around this practice influence you in this turning point that showed up with the pandemic? Wow. I, I, have, uh, I have. Well, what was weird about um, just kind of losing... So Justin and I, well, so there was a, there's a whole history of, like, a bunch of yoga... Uh, my teachers kind of floating in and out of the of the program but then it all shook out that it just turned out to be me and Justin and honestly like that's when everything I feel like really clicked Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. you know because we just are so similar um in the way that we approach the practice and the way we approach teaching and so the the it congealed but we were also just working our behinds off it was a six-day program and we both worked full-time and and we were just working our butts off to get numbers up and because we were working on the studio model that was very corporate it was a corporate yoga studio and and so we were just very I don't want to say attached but there was a there was a a paradigm that we were working in Mm -hmm. and um and then pandemic and the studio closed and it it just kind of like poof was gone and I was weirdly okay with it and I was like so either I don't know how to feel anything anymore or the yoga works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm just like, okay, now this is what we do. And then we, you know, that's what it is. And we kind of move forward from there. And we just like developed this other model for figuring out how to be together for a while until we could be in the same room together. And it just, it just kind of worked. And yeah, like, like I just couldn't believe how much I was okay with everything. And you know, yeah, it was, it was very, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. I think when it like, when that moment of poof happened, I didn't realize like how tired I was. 
Like, I, I think that first week when we weren't waking up to teach in person, I was like, wait, what, what is this sensation in my body? And it was like, oh, I'm rested. Like, this is, like, so bizarre. And, like, that was one thing to navigate. I think um, I have a predisposition. Like, my personality gets really attached to the things that I do do and like kind of yoking my identity to that so like I had like a little bit of navigating like this weird space of like oh what if I'm never a teacher again or like never an in-person teacher again and that kind of went away because I you know we very quickly transitioned to teaching online and I had people reach out and I was teaching online during the pandemic too um in one-on-one capacity so like I never really like kind of went down that rabbit hole but it was it was always an interesting thing to navigate from my practice perspective because the year of 2020 I was like oh I have plans for my practice like I'm just gonna do all of these things I was starting to learn third series and it was like I'm gonna be doing x y and z by the end of the year and then pandemic hit and not long after pandemic hit and I was practicing in my home I started having a knee injury and then I was dealing with that for pretty much 12 months and like that really changed everything that I was going to be doing because I couldn't like really seek any sort of therapeutic care for it. Uh, I couldn't receive any body work because we were in the middle of pandemic and like all of the things that I really needed for that I couldn't get until we were well into 2021 like maybe April maybe May and so I started healing but it took a year and like there was a solid year where there was just things I was not doing anymore. Um, like a lot of my back bends, like, and that's something that I need physically in my body because like, I'm pretty stiff back there. And so like, not to be able to have that for as long a period of time as it was, like I, (laughs) there were times where I was like, am I ever going to like have my practice again? And like, what does that mean? And if I don't have that practice, am I still going to be worthwhile as a teacher? Am I going to have information to give as a teacher? And yes, I think is the, the short answer of it. Right. And I say all of that because, like, the, similarly, are we ever going to have a program again? Are we ever going to be able to teach in person again? Like, if we even open a studio, will people want to, like, practice with us? Short answer, yes. And, like, grateful for all of that, right? And the one thing that practice teaches me is if you approach it with sincerity, if you continue to do the thing and be honest with yourself about what it is you're doing in that moment, then it's going to provide something of value to you in the end. And it might not necessarily be the thing that you set out for, but it's going to be the thing that you need. So I'd love to piggyback on that and connect this conversation to our last conversation. We went and visited the Be More Clubhouse, which is a psychiatric rehabilitation program in Baltimore that's run in this very interesting model where they have, uh, like here, they have an an open door policy uh, and folks can kind of come in and come out as they need to. And then... Within that sort of open door space, they have a very set structure of not practices and postures, but sort of activities that people can do and, and roles they can play as sort of volunteer employees of the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was walking in here, I had a similar experience as I had walking into that space, which is it seems like one of the features I'm noticing is in order to do this balance of like come in and yet set a community that the physical space becomes really important, like walking into the physical space. And then I've also noticed this similarity where you have this openness, like you can come and go, but once you're in, there's a very set structure. And I'm just really curious about how you see the balance between that sort of that openness of like people can come and go and that, that sense of like it being very free 
And then also the practice itself being like very prescribed and just how, how those two kind of work with each other. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. That's a thinker. That is a thinker. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm going to try to like make a connection here and I don't necessarily know if I'm going to make it right. What I think that is, is a little bit like an artistic practice, right? The people that I know that have some, whatever medium they work in, the thing that they do is always the same, right? Like a person will always set up their canvas. They will always prime the canvas. They will always paint. A person that takes a picture will always hold their camera in a particular way. They'll always get their body dynamics in a particular way. They'll always look at something in a particular way, frame it with their eyes, and then take a picture. The end result is always different, right? Because the subject is always different. The day is always different. The location is always different. In that way, this is a little bit like that artistic practice insofar as like the container is the same, right? The framework of getting out of bed, of getting dressed, of commuting, of walking up those stairs, of rolling out your mat, always the same. And in that, you have the opportunity to just explore. And so while... It seems very regimented while it, it, the framework is very specific. It's also set up in that way, I think, um, to just allow the maximum opportunity for exploration, creativity, and freedom. Um, because without those guardrails, there's, uh, there's no control. There's no like baseline by which you can evaluate how today is uh, particularly different than yesterday. And I like to kind of think of, the, of that like, regimented part as a container you know, for whatever messiness is happening within that container. And that, you know, you see students show up every day and I show up every day in a different body, in a different mm -hmm. mindset, in a different, you know, um, different weather, different everything, right? Like we're different within the container. And actually, I think that container helps us understand the fluctuations. Mm -hmm. I see. So like maintaining, maintaining the regularity of the practice helps you see where you are because you have you start to have mm -hmm. this sort of barometer because yeah, my experience of like right before the pandemic i was trying to re re kickstart my yoga practice and i i went to a new studio and i did like a 14 day pass and i did 14 different classes mm -hmm. in those 14 days and then the pandemic hit like right at the end of my 14 day pass um so it was interesting because like i had no idea what like where i was right. because it was changing each time and i had no way of like just judging against that mm -hmm. Yeah. No yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And pe some people love that. Like, like I hear a lot. It's just like, I just need variety, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, and I, I'm like, give me ritual, give me, mm -hmm. give me routine. Like that's, you know, and I'm sure that that like, if going back to trauma, et cetera, like I'm to be, to be a sharer, you know, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic and, or two alcoholics actually. And, um, you know, my world was chaos and I like control, maybe too much. Right. And so, you know, so <laughs> sometimes I probably need to go to one of those vinyasa classes where we're all like, you know, like. <laughs> That's why like, they're second series. Yeah, I know. I know. Like, I, like um, I went to one of my friend's classes and we were it was very choreographed and dancey and I look like, you know, the tin man in the front like me. Right, right. And, um, and, you know. They were like, you know, and for the more left brain people in the room, here's, we'll do a sun citation. I was like, thank God, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I know what's happening. Um, but some people really just need that freedom and, and, you know, and I 
think that vinyasa classes are really good for those folks, you know? And again, like kind of what Justin said, like, like we don't want to begrudge anybody anything for, you know, what works for them. Um, but for the people for whom just trying to kind of hold their messy selves together within that container, I think it's, it's a, has a lot of value because I, I don't get bored with this and I've been doing it for 20 years. Like it does not bore me. And I kind of feel like the other stuff would bore me because I like a goal. I like, I like the focus of being like, this feels different than yesterday. And this has changed over the course of microscopically over the course of 10 years and whatever. So there's just something very, I think, therapeutic about, to me about that. And I've had, I've had many, 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 many injuries. And that process is always a mystery of, of healing, you know, and being patient with healing and being patient with myself and being impatient and being like, Hey, I'm being impatient. And maybe I took it too far today, yesterday. And um, <laughs> maybe I took it too far yesterday, not today. I feel pretty good. So, so you know, and I was like beating myself and I was like, oh, you're beating yourself up for that. Be cool. It's fine. You, you're you just seeing what your limits are. And that's something that we are also getting students to do. Like, what is that limitation? Like, is that just something the way that your body is built? Like, okay, fine. Just is, right? Some people have longer arms. Some people have shorter arms. Like, they're going to bind differently. Your center of gravity might be different, whatever. And so that coming to terms with, like, just how you are built and then how you are built in your head. I can't tell you how many students I'm just like, just relax. <laughs> just relax. And now it can take two years to figure out how to relax. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I'll let you know when I do it. <laughs> but just, like, seeing people fight themselves and not relax into things and and they know they're like i know you know and and you were about to say it's like that's probably the word we say the most yeah i think so i think that <laughs> it, yeah i mean yes that is exactly what i was going to say but i i do think that's probably what we say the most like that single word just relax right and like why wouldn't anybody <laughs> like the world we live in right now like we're all like kind of living up here um and you know a practice is an opportunity to not say that none of that stuff exists but how to exist in a world where we have all of those things happen but do it where you're not like this so much and you can be you know a little bit more relaxed and when you're relaxed you actually make decisions from a better position right like you can strategize better and so like we we always talk about like how yoga prepares us for, with the tools to like make the world better and i think that that's what it is right like we're we're trying to effectively create opportunity to navigate the world that we live in from a place of strategy, but not from a place of reactivity. Because when you're reactive, you make decisions that probably don't service the greater good. It's just the immediate benefit to the individual. And so in that context, right, like if you can say, okay, shit's on fire. Like, what can I do? Also, who else in this immediate vicinity can I help get out of this fire? That's probably more intrinsically the the best decision you can make in that particular context. So for me personally, the, the pandemic brought into focus something that I've kind of vaguely been thinking about over a long time, which is the balance between um, community versus isolation and individualism. And as you're talking about the process of this type of yoga, 
um, I'm hearing a lot of ways that this is kind of an, uh, a very individualized process. Everyone's doing it at their own pace, starting at their own time, working on different things. There's this intra-psychic journey that's taking place over the course of the, pra- of the pr- practice. And yet there's also, at least as I've experienced it, something that feels like a, a strong community around this. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that from your experience, and then what was the community like over the course of the pandemic, and what have your thoughts been about community versus this kind of individualized aspect of the way that you've been describing things? The community aspect of it, so there's a couple of things that come to mind. So one is the power of like collective energy. I actually continue to practice, like that. We did we set up this like Google Hangout. And it just wound up dropping off to just me and one other person. You but mean this is when the studio like, shut down yeah, initially? When the studio, sorry, yeah, when the studio... And actually still, like, we still practice on Google Hangout in the days <laughs> we're not here. And, uh, like, it is so... I know that we're supposed to be accountable to ourselves, but, like, I also know that some days, you know, I'm dragging ass and I don't feel like dragging my ass to the mat. And But just to know that somebody's there waiting for me and probably also relies on whatever that that is, that collective energy just feels useful. Um, and so just coming into a room and ca- having people carry you along is amazing. Um, and then the other thing is, is that we kind of all start to kind of, kind of get a sense of like where everybody is struggling, like together in a room, right? And so we're rooting for each other and you feel it. Like you feel that we're rooting for each other. And like in some... Uh, my store rooms, you're not allowed to talk. You're not allowed to call the teacher over. You're not, and we're not like that. We are kind of rowdy, you know, we're <laughs> Baltimore. Like we're very Baltimore. Yeah. Like we're just, you know, we're cracking jokes and laughing and, <laughs> and, you know, so we don't have that, like, you know, maybe we lose some reverence in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there is, I think value in that, that quietness, but what we lose in reverence, we gain in community. And solidarity and also I do think sometimes that maybe Ashtangis take themselves a little too seriously. And Uh oh, um, hot take. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, and so there's this there's been a lot of like debate about like what does it mean? There's a there's something called um parampara, which is like the tradition of the of the practice like passed down from teacher to student, teacher to student, teacher to student, and there's a lineage, right? Um, and that lineage has come into major question for a number of reasons over the past few years, um, partly because of the founder of the practice, Patabi Joyce. Um, you know, it was a kind of an open secret that he sexually assaulted some students. Um, and then that, what it wasn't, it became like an open, open, not secret. Um and the other thing is, is the, the kind of way that the practice became extremely strict in that, like, you had to be able to do this whole, ver- like, this quote-unquote full version of a pose in order to move on to the next pose. And um, there, will, there will be teachers who will stop you for five, six years if you can't put your leg behind the he- your head. And it's like some people can't ever put their leg behind their head. And it's just not right for their bodies. And so what? You feel like a failure and you feel like crap about yourself? Like that's not what we're here to do to make people feel bad about themselves or wrench themselves into something that isn't right for them because of some purported ideal. We're human beings who live in the world, right? right? And 
so the the way that we've built this community is to to really feel like we are here for one another and we are trying to make each other like see some hard stuff about our you know the way that we move through the world we we are tackling that but we try to tackle it in this more lighthearted way even today like one of the students was like we were I was talking about my shoulder and she's like I could feel the rage coming off of you I was like I know I was like I'm so <laughs> pissed about this like I don't want to have a, a sprained shoulder <laughs> obviously right um because I really want to rock and roll in my practice like it does have something some somewhat of a psychological benefit I don't want to think about it so much but but we laugh about it right like and it, it does give me this like sense of like we're all just muddling through all of this together and laughing and feeling connected to each other. And that is so, so valuable. And I do know that some people didn't practice over the pandemic because they lost that community. And that community was so important to them that, you know, they did, but they came back right when, right when we opened. So. Yeah. Something that, um, you said, Heather, made me think of at least my own approach or the framework by which I think of myself as a teacher in this program. And i trying not to speak for you, but I, I think we share this where um, what Heather spoke of with Parampara, like kind of that framework, that lineage, like really has teachers exist up here and students exist everywhere else underneath, right? And like, you can think of it as a triangle, like there's going to be one teacher at the very pinnacle and like maybe some teachers under him and then under them more teachers and then under them more more teachers, more students. The way I think of, of my relationship with the students, not interpersonally, but just like from a power dynamic perspective is on a horizontal line because I'm every bit of student as they are, right? And also I'm not in a position to think that just because I'm sharing information that makes me any better or more informed or more powerful than them in the context of this room, right? And I think that that only helps to foster the sense of community as opposed to making this much more of a pedagogical enterprise where it's like, oh, there's the teacher or the taskmaster, right? But like, oh, there's there's our friends, right? There's those people that we got our cats from. There's those people that like we see every day at the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. Like there are those people who are people. Um, Like we are very much practicing in the room with our students, which doesn't happen a lot of times in other spaces from what I'm to understand, right? Like we, we purposely pull the veil and throw it out of the window and light it on fire because like I think it's really important for the people that practice here to know that we are in it with them every step of the way exactly in the same ways they are and just going through the same process right like it's all we're all humans and we're all experiencing things and just because like we're doing more advanced asana doesn't necessarily mean we're any further along in the process it just means we have more information relative to the process generally speaking yeah and and i think like it is so important that we are showing up like i think it's really important that i show up and practice even if i can't do a downward dog and i can't right now right and that like, cause that gives them permission to show up and not be able to do a downward dog. Right. Like it's like, but you show up however you are and that's also of value. And so I, we make it a priority to make sure that like it, you know, they see us struggle as much as they see us prevail. Right. Because otherwise that, you know, it can be really easy to put people on a pedestal and you know, you, we don't want that. Like mm-hmm. we want, people to know that we're in the trenches with them. 
And the only thing that makes me a little more knowledgeable is that I've just been probably doing it longer and that mm -hmm. I've made a lot of mistakes and I've noticed things over the, over, over time or things have gotten more subtle and I can help people. I'm like, Ooh, yay. I can help people tap into that. Like in a way that, cause I existed without a teacher for many, 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 many years. Cause we just didn't have a MISER program. And, um, I really w like was really sad about it, but I'm now I have teachers and honestly, zoom made that happen. But yeah, so like, it, it's just something very democratic hopefully mm -hmm. about what we're about what we're doing yeah that's really funny i think um like applying it personally right those who can't teach <laughs> like that as the joke says right but like i i really think that like and i i feel like we've joked about this before but like the the reason i feel any bit successful in my seat as a teacher is because like i'm kind of bad at yoga <laughs> in a way right like i they, like I, I just am but like that also gives me a, a place of like I'm constantly exploring those edges by which of the things that I can't do. And that gives me information to be able to help people kind of break through those barriers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Like, I think you just described a feeling I've had as a therapist for a long time. It's like, I don't know any better. I'm just, I'm, I'm really bad at life, but I'm also super curious about the very specific ways that I'm bad. And I've studied how bad, mm -hmm. like I can get in very, in like deep detail. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a deep curiosity, not a kind of perfection. Yeah. And as you're, as you're talking and I'm thinking again of our conversation with Jason, who's the executive director of a horizontal organization and like, how do you navigate leading a people in an environment that's taught you that leadership is like maximizing ego and putting yourself at the top of the pyramid. Like, and I'm just, I just love hearing the two of you reflect on like how you navigate both leading and being a teacher, right? Not abdicating of that responsibility, but also like not letting that go too far and become something that becomes controlling and, and then leads to like the, the sort of situation that you're describing where there's a, a sense of power and control. So I guess my question in all of that kind of comes back to Actually, this is a little bit of a left turn. So what I'd like to ask next is, Heather, you've used a couple of words that have really like raised a curiosity in my mind. You've used the word ritual. You've used the word reverence, you know? And as I was thinking, like, yeah, like waking up at early in the morning every day to do a set, like it does seem very much like uh, the style of yoga and the community that you're building here is uh, what... I would consider a kind of a spiritual community in, in, at least in, in the, in the ritual and the, and the reverence and the, the style of work that you're doing. Um, and that's a, that's a curiosity of mine in, in a world where religious beliefs and spiritual practices are shifting at a very rapid rate. Just what you're observing about that, how like people will come in for the physical practice. They'll start to explore, um, the psychological benefit of the practice. But then you mentioned things like dissolving ego. And we start to get into this transcendent territory. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm just curious, like, I'm, it's, it's a, probably a topic that's hard to talk about because it's very mysterious, like you were struggling to find words for it. But just what you're observing in the people who are beginning to make that transition and, and what you're observing in folks who are transitioning beyond just like, oh, it's helping me meditate and feel flexible, like who are entering into that more mysterious territory. Wow. Um, I think maybe like the subject of conversation changes right in the context of their practice maybe it's less about how they're experiencing a posture from a, a technique perspective and like what's going on subtly with them right um 
like the moment in time where somebody like says out loud, oh, I feel my nervous system like doing its thing. And it's like, oh, you can see that. Like that's a really big shift because I don't think most people can. And like certainly I can't most hours out of the day. Like I have to put myself in really extreme scenarios to like notice when my nervous system is like kind of reacting to stimuli. Um, And I think that that's probably the first part of it. Um, And then like, I think it's, it might be related to kind of what I was talking about earlier, at least how I see it, right? Like those big shifts that happen outside of the context of their practice. Like when they make decisions that um, might not otherwise have surfaced um, that benefit their own life that you can see came about because they're viewing their own personal experience in a different context or in a different light. I think that that, that's probably a lot of it. Um, There's a softening that I think happens with people too, just in their approach, uh, the language they use. Um, Actually, like if I could walk it back a little bit, I think there's, there's a way that people talk about themselves that shifts um, and, and that softness, I think, is a really big indicator that, that maybe there's um, something a little bit more subtle and mysterious at play, like that, that, that relationship with yourself turning into your own friend, um, which can be very challenging for people. But early in a context like where you're kind of surrounding yourself in an achievement-based sort of framework, right? Like there's a pose and a pose and a pose and like the whole thing. Um, maybe that like I think that 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 might be kind of the gateway that I would view that I'm really curious as to what Heather would have to say about that so there there's this like this idea that um you can kind of see your quote-unquote self more more clearly and there's like a like we're one thing that we're doing is we're trying to emphasize the philosophy the philosophical texts a little bit more in this program so the only workshops we've had are not asana, but sutra workshops with um, Amy Echo. And um, there's this, this kind of emphasis in those texts of like boiling down the self so that you don't identify with what is external, that there's some kernel of, this, of the self that is like the self. You know, I, I have a hard time with that. I'm I love a... how she describes it. And I constantly think about it. She said at the last workshop, she said, we're just trying to tap into the part of ourselves that has never made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I, like, that's just a really lovely notion that there is that level of innocence that exists in all of us, right? Like that that piece of us that's like a three-year-old or a two-year-old and like that, that just being of like pure senses Mm -hmm. and just existing in that. I I just really love that as a line and as a concept and as at least something to like look towards Mm. in the context of like doing all of this. Yes. That which is aware of and allows for all experiencing and is yet unaffected by it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah, You're just kind of, so the way that Richard Freeman talks about it is like, we can think of, um, you know, somebody who's like, it's a very patriarch he and he acknowledges this is a very patriarchal metaphor but like there's a dancer and there's somebody who's observing the dancer but like once you like once the dancer realizes they're being observed they stop because they are shy and that's kind of like what you're trying to do you're like trying to like observe all the the dancing and then make it stop <laughs> um and uh because it's yeah 
um, the, the shyness, I'm not so sure about the metaphor, but just trying to like, just be like, oh, I'm not going to get carried away by all of this, right? Uh, like you can, I see people see themselves more clearly, more quickly, mm-hmm. I think is the, the way that I've, I've seen all of this kind of shake out. Oh, I'm doing that again. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh, you know, mm-hmm. oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is. And it's not like it'll, it might not ever stop, but at least you don't get carried away. And that's, I think, has a lot of value. Like what spirituality means, I don't know. I like, I am, I am steeped in two like traditions that are in some ways extremely opposed to one another. Like, like yoga, which is this very esoteric and I don't want to say it's ungrounded because it's not ungrounded, but like. Like this, this idea that there's this like pure self and that we're just trying to get back to that. And the things that we identify with are, you know, are not the self Mm -hmm. and to not identify with that because that's all impermanent that you grasp, like, like the way that you grasp for things is actually grasping for the opposite of that thing as well. You're like, if if you're grasping for pleasure, you're also grasping for misery because you're, because the, that grasp for pleasure is temporary Mm -hmm. and you're then you're going to be miserable when you don't have it anymore. And so I, in that way, I, I I really get it. But like this idea of like a pure self, I have a really hard time with that idea because I am a sociologist and I am like socialization, you know, structures. I I don't know that there's a pure self. Like I don't Mm. know what that is. And like the way that Amy asked it was like, about like who were you when you were two? I was like I I was the stubborn like <laughs> like like gregarious. I was the this person. I was still this person yeah. like the stubborn gregarious like like I'll do it. You know like I was always this person. So I don't know if that's like my pure essential self, and that I'm just still my pure essential self. <laughs> like who's the stubborn like I am going to figure this out. Don't help me. Mm-hmm. You know, blah 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 person. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't know. But um, but I'm also very aware of the fact that I'm living in a historical context under capitalism, under patriarchy, under white supremacy, under, you know, heteronormativity, under ableism, under fat phobia. Like, I know all of those structures exist and they inform so much of what I'm thinking. But I think the way that there is overlap is that I can see the way that yo- like yoga helps me kind of step out and be like, that's that in action. I see those systems in action on my body, on my mind, on my perceptions, like everything is a, is a construct that is built upon, you know, something that is obscuring our potential. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, except, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I was like, except if you're a white man, because then all you think is, you have potential, but (laughs) 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 because that's what you've been told. Yeah. You know, it's true. Can I just summarize and reflect what I'm hearing here, which is that, that the practice is basically setting people up to make mistake after mistake, after mistake, after mistake, to eventually come into contact with the part of you that's never made a mistake. That is a crazy paradox. Hmm. Oh, that is a really interesting paradox. I have to chew on that a little bit, right? Because I, I chew on that. Because <laughs> I've never like actually wove that narrative together in succession, right? So like that, I mean, it lines up really nicely in a way. 
But wow, yeah, thank you for that. Well, I mean, just, I, yeah. you said it. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, that connection, right? Like that's that's, that's really we'll do an editing. We'll just take those two sentences and put it together. Yeah, and then you yeah. <laughs> that's really fascinating. I mean, it, yes, right. Like at least in in part, my perspective, um, you know, the the overarching framework is like, yes, we can. We're doing that in service of. Um, and then like what else in the in that container too right because like you know much as what heather said like there is also the reality of the world that we live in and like all of the things that um we're born into that create the conditions of the life that we actually live right and so that doesn't account for like you know, the trauma that lives in our bodies that we inherit from our parents, right? Before we're even a thing that's walking or crawling on this earth. And like, you know, that whole idea doesn't account for that um, reality. And so, yes, but then also what else, I think. Um, and I think it, it becomes incumbent upon us um, as teachers to, um, and practitioners too, right? Like kind of in that horizontal structure to always question that um, and not, actively just assume that uh philosophy as written is 100 percent correct um and relative because like it, you have to ask who wrote it who did they write it for who was reading it how has it changed over time who got a hold of those texts and rewrote it when was that rewritten when was it popularized who popularized it right and like there's a whole historical context around you know the yoga sutras being popularized under colonial british rule and like there's a whole thing there that you have to unpack and like why and so yeah it's it's and even the, the modern postural practice being mm -hmm. british calisthenics yeah right like like in order to um yeah to to to, to kind of diffuse and popularize the practice yeah. like yeah it's, it, and so, like, in that context, right, like, just on that surface, like, yoga as a practice, as a philosophy could easily be seen. And you could make a reasonable claim that it was a level of control, right? Like, it, you're controlling a populace around this idea of colonialism, uh, white supremacy, and, and creating something that, like, gives the opportunity to pacify people. Um, and so, like, there's this weird balance. And, like, I think it's it's just helpful to understand, to the best of your ability, like, all of the things that are at play with the things that you're doing um, to have a grasp on what things are actually of service to you. Um, because, like, it's very easy for, <laughs> and we hear this with yoga teachers, like, we're all one and, like, everything is good. And it's like, mm. we are not and we it isn't, right? And, like, that's real. Mm -hmm. That's real. Um, and so, like, you know, there, there, I think that there has to be a middle path. There has to be a little bit of willingness to surrender to, like, kind of the mystery of it. But then also, like, still understand the reality of the world that we live in and ground it in something to be able to positively make some sort of progress forward, not only individually, but societally. Uh, I, I was glad that you both brought up the relationship between the teacher and the student in yoga. And we also think about the relationship between a, a therapist and the client or patient. And I had read online at some point, some yoga teachers wrote about this phenomenon where maybe at the end of a class, students might come up to them and, and treat the yoga teacher as if they're a therapist and open up about personal things and asking for kind of guidance and wisdom. Um, 
And I'm curious, why do you think that's happening? What is it about yoga, about this kind of physical practice that is uh, maybe inviting people to make that leap and say, oh, well, this is somebody that I can talk to about these really personal things that are going on for myself. I think people start to realize that what's going on in their body is very deeply connected to what's going on in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and, you know, some, I think some teachers might be more prone to getting those kinds of questions than others, Mm -hmm. like, because, like, um, some people can really, I'm not good at this, like, this is not me, Um, but can really wax philosophical and Mm -hmm. feel like they, it looks like they have answers, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and they have their shit figured out. And, like, if you, you can talk to them because they, they figured something out that you haven't yet. Um, <laughs> and, and, like, weirdly, The like, paradox of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'm just like, oh, my God, that, you know, we're all dumpster fires. Like, all of us, we are all dumpster fires. Yeah. <laughs> not a single you know, one of us not in that, yeah, that yeah. category. But, um, but there, there can be this um, projection, yeah. right? And we, we, I think we serve a lot of purposes, right? We're like, we're physical therapists. We're emotional therapists. We're spiritual gurus. Like we're coaches. We're coaches. Yeah. We're definitely coaches, you know, like, and, um, we're, you know, and sometimes we are taskmaster masters. Like I know I am. Yeah. Do it again. Stay there. Like stay with that discomfort, you know, like don't fail. Like don't you quit. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you quit. Yeah. And, and so it does, it just seems like we have something to figure out that they don't. So maybe that's yeah. part of it. I think you're probably right that there's that projection that's taking place because of the role that you're in, in some position of power at the front of the room teaching in this way. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if there's also this other part that I think you also alluded to, like there's stuff that happens in our body that's just connected to our emotional states. And I've heard stories from yoga students who if they get into one particular pose um feeling like these releases or flows of energy or emotion like if you're doing like a a hip opening pigeon pose or something Mm -hmm. people might that might uh, trigger people to start crying or other things like that and how do you how do you see that well i mean in in yoga like emotions come up particularly when you're doing like postures right um and that that's just natural because like there's that release that happens and i think maybe some of like kind of that confessional that you speak of is like the process of emotions coming up and then like a person needs some sort of outlet and probably in that moment or at least relative to that moment to just be like blah right and i think we all experience that right like something comes up for us and like we just need to share it um and so like there's i and in the context of like a yoga class or like the mysore room particularly like there's just so much space there's probably um opportunity to share that and that's probably why it happens at the end of like vinyasa classes because that's when there's space to to share um pretty directly um and like you know piggybacking off of heather's point like the teacher was the one that led you into that pose that gave you that sensation that led to that Mm -hmm. revelation that led to that emotional outpouring however you experienced in your body so it's like oh my god like you were the vehicle by which I am feeling this thing. Like I have to like 
give this to you in some sort of way. There's very much that energy exchange that happens, right? Um, or help me make sense of it. Yeah, help me make sense of this, I think, is, is it. Or, like, this seeming, you know, like, omnipotence that we might have because mm-hmm. it's like we can read people's thought bubbles and they're like, mm. how do you know this about me? You know, yeah. it's like you see enough people and you see the way they carry themselves in their body and you're like, okay, I can see the psychology behind what's going on, mm. you know, and it feels people want to feel seen yeah, and they want to feel understood. And here we are seeing them and understanding them. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think Justin's right. Cause we don't experience it. So annoying. Um, we don't experience it in like, these like bombardments after class, we experience it in drips and drabs where somebody might be struggling with something, you know, and talk and they'll talk about it and they'll talk about how that, whatever it is that they're struggling with is showing up on the mat. Right. And, um, but I think what has happened, um, because we are in the trenches with them, because you, you know, like I know tons of yoga teachers don't go to yoga classes, you know, Mm -hmm. because they, they guard their practice for themselves. And so, you know, this whatever magical thing is probably happening in the student's mind on their on their teacher's yoga mat. We've ripped the we've ripped that veil off. <laughs> like we're, you know, right there with them. Like You wanna see us fall over? Like, I know. You wanna see us curse. You wanna see us like angry, fr- angry frustrated, <laughs> um, you know, maybe cry or not us. We're <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever cried on the mat, which have, is like, which is weird. Like, but it was like very long time ago. Like, but, I, I yeah. always feel bad when when people are like, "Don't you know?" And I'm like, "No, I, know. <laughs> I, I really don't." Like, I've had every other emotion under the sun, but just like that, huh. actual physical experiences just never happened for me in the context of a yoga practice. But people do, yeah. right? Sure. And you know, we let them cry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and um, encourage it too. Like we want people to feel feelings. I feel your feelings, man. Like feel what's coming up and that's good. You know? So, so in some ways I think we're doing it like that, that is happening to, to some extent in these like moments where people are at their struggle pose or they're struggling generally. Right. But, um, but I do think that the somewhat democratized nature of the, the endeavor that we've created is we're a little less susceptible to that um, mm-hmm. than, and I've seen, I have had that happen in my vinyasa classes. People come up to me after and they're just, I can see that projection happening and I try really hard to make sure that I like stop it. Yeah. You know, I, like I don't buy into that shit mm-hmm. at all. Cause I'm like, no, no. Like once a student like came up and touched my feet and I was like, cause that's what you do to a guru. And I was like, no, yeah. we don't do that here. Like mm-hmm. that is, I am just a regular ass person mm-hmm. doing regular ass things and that's it. Like, like, and so we really try hard to make sure that, um, people understand that we are tethered yeah. to this, to this earth also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I have a really knee jerk reaction to any sort of lionization. Yeah. Like, like almost like run out of the room like Mm -hmm. it's dangerous yeah it it like really actually freaks me out quite a bit because it's like i i don't view myself in that way and like i i really like am adverse to people thinking that i'm anything other than just like justin Mm -hmm. right like it 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 really isn't that um and much similarly to heather like particularly when i was teaching vinyasa classes people will 
kind of idealize you in a particular kind of way and it just becomes like really like I guess for some people like the danger there is like for some people that feeds into like whatever their own ego is doing at that time and like that becomes really a scary proposition for me it's like I don't want somebody to get lost in that because like they should have complete agency over their experience and like I am nothing more than just a vessel of communication in this particular context or this like interpersonal relationship and like I I never want the power dynamic to ever be anything other than that because we always ask questions right Mm -hmm. does that feel okay is that How's I feel in your body? Like I might, and and I'll say I'm like I might be wrong. Give it a try, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work, scrap it. I like being wrong. <laughs> I love I, being wrong. Yeah, it's fun to problem solve, and yeah. and because it's like, oh, that doesn't work in your body. Hmm. You know, let's let's work together and see what works yeah. and what feels good and what feels right. And we're trying to give people the tools to tap into their own intuition. Mm-hmm. You know, not our intuition like because I, I do feel like there are teachers who try to impose their will in a particular it, way. yeah like impose their will or try to feel seem like i know better than you do and i don't i think people know better and i think it's our job to help them understand that they know better and and to rip off like whatever it is that's um give like giving them or making them not able to access that intuition, yeah. right? Because we do have a lot of layers of things that make us not trust ourselves, right? And we want to help people trust themselves. And and so we're just like, what if you did this? Or how about that? How's that feel? You know? Um, and they have to then check in, mm-hmm. you know? And so if people listening want to learn more about what you're doing here, how can they find out more? about this and and look you up and maybe get started themselves oh man here goes the show um (laughs) baltimoreyogastudies.com or on instagram at baltimoreyogastudies thank you both so much this was really cool thank you so much gratitude for the both of you yeah thank you you too be well thanks again heather hacks and justin temple of baltimore yoga studies so that's been another episode of insight download If you like what you heard, please take some time to give us a a favorable rating online, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, shoot off this episode to other people who might benefit from some of these ideas. Because again, our main purpose here is to try to collect and disseminate ideas that we think are really helpful ideas uh, for the world around us. So I know that uh, the podcasts that I'm most likely to listen to are the ones that uh, a friend has sent me when they think, oh, hey, John, I I thought of you. I really think that you'd be interested in this topic. So if you listen to this conversation and you thought of a friend, family member, a colleague, please go ahead, send this conversation to them. Let them know what made you think of them and help to spread the word. Um, If you have any suggestions about further guests that we could interview or topics that we should explore, please hit us up. Check the show notes for contact information and how to reach John and I. Uh, With that, I'm Fabio Lomolino. I'm John Gorman. And thanks for joining us.